the state of American music. These are the stories of the music that emanates from all corners of the great state of Tennessee. Easily the most musical place on the planet. The forgotten, the famous, the curious regardless of genre, era, or styles. From the banks of the muddy Mississippi, stopping on Beale, past Music Row, through Lower Broadway, and up in the hills and getting down in the holler. So raise a glass of sippin' whiskey and take a ride with us and explore the music from the stages and studios in the world's greatest local music scene. This is the music made of by and in Tennessee on this episode of Journeyman. Welcome back to another episode of Journeyman, Tennessee chapter. This is Michael T. Davis recording at the Insanery with one Mr. Casey Wood. Hello. And Seth West. Hello. Hope everyone is doing well since we last spoke. Uh, before we get back into our story, let's do the thing where we talk about cool rock stuff because the shit I'm dying to know about Casey is his uh, stat or his stint as a temporary coral reefer uh, <laughs> in Toronto Blue Jays. So <laughs> tell us about that because I haven't asked about it. It was awesome. The Blue Jays, I, you know, I don't really follow much baseball. I like baseball. I love going to games, but I don't really follow it. They were super sweet. They had a Margaritaville Day, and they had the Coral Reefers come and play. And I got a jersey that says, it's a, a really nice Toronto Blue Jays jersey on the back, says Coral Reefer. Nice. So it's official. <laughs> now it's official. You're a substitute Coral Reefer. <laughs> substitute. Does it just say Reefer? <laughs> I wish. Yeah. Did you get kicked down to the minors? Is that what just happened? Like yeah. you got caught up for one game? And- <laughs> yeah. Yep. Back out on the farm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Playing, playing for the sounds. Uh <clears throat> <laughs> I'm still blowing. Like, did they have somebody like singing? Like, or yeah. did the crowd? So, yeah, like- oh yeah. So, like, Nadira, who's one of the background singers in the group, is an amazing singer. She was in the group Arrested Development. Remember them? Yeah, the nineties. Tennessee. Yep. So she she sings with Jimmy. Oh, so she sang lead. Can you bring her on the show? Do you know her? Yeah, I don't think she lives here, but yeah, we can try. Okay. You know, funny quick story. Uh that after the TV show came out, they sued the TV show Arrested Development and got a bunch of money and were able to go back out and really? do more work. Yeah, and they got paid pretty well for it, I guess. I, I didn't hear a number, but enough that it was like, hmm. and that is such a great song. Like, yeah. such a good song. So that's cool. And she's in the Coral Reefers with Casey, mm-hmm. substitute uh, drummer. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I joked, I told them if they, you know, five more of these gigs and I'll have it down, I'll be good to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, how, exactly how they left. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you need to do to like get this gig permanent? Do we need to like trip this guy? <laughs> yeah, we get, we'll summon the Tanya Harding School of Opponent <laughs> Neutralization. <laughs> no. no, it's uh, Roger, the normal drummer in the band. Well, normal as normal as you can be. Is, he's awesome. So he just, it was one that he didn't feel like doing. Yeah, which I was honored to get the call. You should you should go on tour. I bet that pays a lot of money. I I bet you they are paid well. I yeah, I would assume. Lots of reefer coral <laughs> reefers. <laughs> so Seth and I, I don't know what Seth has done, but I went on family vacation. But that literally like three hours after I came home from family vacation, I decided to take Seth and his wife and my wife out for a date night. And so Seth, what do you do on a Monday night date night? You when know, you, the most romantic thing you can think of. Which is? 
Take your wives to Iron Maiden. Iron fucking Maiden. Oh my God, it was so good. It was I awesome. bet. Oh, yeah. dude. And I haven't seen her talk fun. to you since. Yeah, yeah. It was super fun. Wait, yeah. wait. Okay, so was it at the <clears throat> municipal auditorium? No. Come oh. on, man. Well, <laughs> come on. It was it. Seems like a fitting venue for Iron Maiden. Bridgestone. Bridgestone. Awesome. Yeah, Great. so which is like three times the size. Yeah. And oh, dude, I mean, they killed it. And I've never seen him, and Seth had never seen him. Mm-mm. And I tried to see him so many times. Like, I had bought tickets to go see him in Dublin, Ireland. Couldn't make it. One time when I moved, I missed them both times and like you know they've been one of my favorite bands since i've been 11 mm-hmm. like they're in my top 10 five and it was just killer i got so, to see some of that schoolboy uh excitement come out man <laughs> <laughs> they hit the first chord davis is just jumping up and down for like I'd say you next three songs you know yeah you know. yeah yeah i get my cardio going when i, when uh, I get pumped for the old school metal okay so two questions <clears throat> Did the ladies share the enthusiasm? First of all, uh, my wife really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. So did my wife. Yeah, I yeah, could yeah. see. So and Nora, I'm assuming she knows a lot of the songs just from having, if if nothing else, just from you playing them around the house, right? being subjected to. Quick yeah. aside before you get to your second question, like after I sort of like got her in, not into it, but like played, I was like, so what do you like about it? She goes, the galloping. I was like, yeah. okay, yeah, the galloping. Yeah, well, all right. She's a, a okay. huge, uh, you know, selling feature of Iron Maiden. <laughs> right, <you know>? yeah. <laughs> what was your second Iron Maiden? Well, what, what was the the shirt choice for the concert goer? So, so wow. here's the deal. So this was a big a big thing for me. Uh, one, I already have an Iron Maiden shirt, and when I bought it, first of all. Another quick aside. So we get in when we go out to you know grab some drinks beforehand downtown, and Seth looks at me because downtown Monday night on lower Broadway, it was still crazy. Mm-hmm. And Seth just looks at me and goes, can you believe this is where I fucking live? <laughs> and I'm like, it's weird, man. Like as, as awesome as it is, sometimes it just gets really weird. Uh, and we met a couple other buddies, you know, just doing the whole pre-show thing. And every person that sat down after I told my wife, so I was like, man, I should have worn my maiden shirt. She's like, well, what about the rule? What about the t-shirt? Seeing the band rule. I was like, why well, I mean, didn't really count, you know? Uh, and then my buddy Shane said the same exact thing, unprompted. <laughs> Seth comes in, literally says the same thing. Yeah, they're not one of those pants. Yeah, man. It does, it does, <laughs> for some reason, they get exempted from that rule. You do wear the shirt. Right. In fact, I'd say 75% of the people at the show. Yeah. Some of them just shirts they had, you know, just purchased. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have one Iron Maiden shirt, and it just is the logo. And it took me a long time to find because most of them are two-sided with all the tour dates and they're just like the gigantic, so it's a little bit less subtle than I like. However, I had just come back from South Dakota where I saw Mount Rushmore and they had four eddies on Mount Rushmore. (laughs) And I stared at that motherfucker for like 10 minutes. And I was like, would I ever actually wear it though? Because it was so obnoxiously iron. The back was super obnoxious too. Yeah. It's like an eagle on an American flag. (laughs) Those things in and of themselves are obnoxious. But again, full back graphic of just like... Selling that part of it hard, and I and I was feeling Mount Rushmore because I was literally there. Yeah. I just driven back. <laughs> yeah, which is a good segue into the next question, which is how was the trip? It was killer. It was killer. Did you go to Kadoka? I, I drove past it in your little so you, garden. You opted not to stop. No, because <laughs> we were trying to make it the wall. Oh yeah. So if I for the, for my rabid fans, my legion of listeners, uh, there was a. Uh, Fine Italian motor scooter rally for Lambretta. It's the national rally for Lambrettas. Uh, and it's a smaller group than like the Vespa group. And so like one guy literally rode all the way from Brooklyn to Custer, South Dakota. Holy shit. Yeah. 35 miles an hour the whole way. Hey man, his bike goes <laughs> fast. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
And so we made family vacation to go out. And then Casey's big thing was, you got to stop in Kadoka. And I said, don't tell me about well, it. Okay. That's what you said, bro. I did, but. And, and then I think the place was closed. Like <laughs> the city or the one thing. In <laughs> the there? one thing, it was like this, like, like the Pee Wee Herman style, like dinosaur oh, attraction. Right. Okay. You know? I've got the card. <laughs> I don't know why you needed to get up and leave. All right, back to our story. Uh, Casey, before we get started, why don't you go ahead and play Pledging My Love? Forever, my darling, my love will be true. Always and forever, I'll love just. So that was Johnny Ace singing Pledging My Love, number one hit. So the Pittsburgh Courier states on the death, Johnny Ace trumped his own ace in a dangerous game, and they carried his body back to the cradles of the blues from whence it sprang. He played well, but not wisely. That's when the blues walked in, and they carried Johnny out. So on January 1st, 1955, Billboard magazine had proclaimed that of the many things to be thankful for in the burgeoning R&B scene, Johnny Ace was very high on the list, especially coming off eight hits in a row. Johnny's body was now cold at this point, but the magazine was behind in the news and kept pitching him without letting its audience know that Johnny was dead. So they were just about to start an actual rhythm and blues section in Billboard, for the new year, for 1955, measuring record sales, jukebox plays, and to boot, they included Pledging My Love as a best buy for the week. This next week, Billboard added an additional commentary in the magazine. The recent death of Ace gave an impetus to what would probably have been heavy first sales in any case. Billboard had speculated it is spiraling upwards at dazzling speed and is almost as popular with pop customers as with R&B. So print date and slow news media at the time really didn't allow the industry to acknowledge Johnny's death until the next week in which they had said, hey, there was already a hot record ready to go, but when they were actually able to say, hey, this would have been a hit record anyway you shake it, now with Johnny being dead, it's going to send it over the charts. They got the details wrong. They misstated Johnny's age as 23 and the date of, of the death is 27th. The song, pretty much standard fare by Johnny Ace's repertoire, right? It's a nice and slow love ballad. It's meant to tug at the heartstrings. Johnny Otis uh, played and he was the uh, producer, right? It's another simple, no frills love song. Uh, but the band and Johnny seem more confident in their playing and their delivery, more with it. It's a better sonic record, I think. Um, the melody is a little bit tighter. Um, I don't know, guys, what do you think about the song by comparison to what we've heard so far? And even his first couple of hits, like my song, right? It's just so different. Even though it's the same, but you, you feel the professionalism is what I mean. It does seem like a culmination of what he's been doing up to this point or a refined version of it. It's one of my, I think it's one of the catchier ones. It's one of the ones that catches my ear the most. Right. Yeah. Out of everything yeah. I've heard. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely more polished. Two years on the road, playing every night, working with you know professional engineers and Johnny Otis, and with that, I guess you know you're going to get better at your craft. And it's a nice, it's a nice catchy song. It, it definitely feels like it's just the next iteration and better, right? So there is a lot of 
merit in the song as a song itself. If you go back to where we first started to talk about his first songs, you could see why they were small, regional, middling hits. You know, they were like, okay, this is nice, you know, but this is, this is good. It's 1955. Johnny Ace is dead, killed by his own hand on Christmas. Don Roby goes into overdrive. So contemporary accounts have the date of the death as a number of different possibilities in the press, right? So now people are interested in this story. So it was alleged that Roby actually had moved the date of the death in the press accounts to Christmas Eve and not Christmas Day in all the official Duke Records communication to heighten and romanticize the scandal and the timing of the incident. And it seems like it might've worked. For decades, everyone, including Johnny's family, thought that possibly he actually did die on Christmas Eve, not on Christmas Day, later in the day. There's further speculation that the two dates were just merely confused in popular memory, right? I mean, Christmas is essentially a two-day holiday, right? So you could see where people would get confused. By the third week of the new year, 1955, on the brand new R&B charts that Billboard had just printed for the first time ever, Pledging My Love appeared. It was a top 10, coming in at number nine for the week, and it was reviewed as a 95 out of 100. The B-side was no money. So the promotion machine goes into overdrive. The records are selling like hotcakes in several of the large markets on the strength of the song itself, the history, and of course, the salacious details of Johnny's apparent suicide. But just as important is the new PR blitz that Don Roby did. So he's pushing out photos of the late, great Johnny Ace, eight hits in a row, maintaining his songs will live forever. So now Billboard is on fire with the hot R&B streak, highlighting the new genre, claiming that the gross revenue across all R&B streams are over $25 million a year annually, with sales doubling in the previous year. Commenting that the market was driven by indie labels and that the majors were slow to market. Billboard featured a long tribute to Johnny Ace, prominently placed not in the R&B section of the magazine, but next to the pop section, next to its respected honor roll of hits, stating the music world lost a remarkable talent with the recent tragic death of Johnny Ace. The singer had a hit with his first record on the Duke label, My Song, and came through with hits consistently thereafter. Ace's simple and unaffected style of singing his evident sincerity and heart actually started the R&B field on a type of song that has become to be known as the heart ballad. The singer had more of a talent than most, and he could also write a song. And he did write this time. Well, again and again, getting the lyrics of different direct and personal appeal. The death of Ace created one of the biggest demands for a record that had occurred since the death of Hank Williams just over two years previous. Orders for the new record, Pledging My Love, began to pour into the Duke Peacock discery in the same amounts as the large discaries usually receive for a new record by a big pop artist. The discery went into full-scale production on the record and had plants in Houston working extra shifts and now had records being pressed in both the East and West Coast. In addition, at the request of his many, many followers, the label is bringing out an LP of all of Ace's previous hits, which will be soon available to the public. There are more Ace records in the can, and the firm intends to bring them out from time to time. They later claimed that Pledging My Love was causing grown women to weep and write suicidal poems to newspapers and magazines. 
So to Seth's question from a while ago, which is, you know, when did R&B come about? Mm-hmm. Here we are, right? This is... Officially recognized. Officially recognized by Billboard, by the industry's most important sort of compiler of this information. Right at this time, he's been making this music. We've got a sensational hit, uh, a good song, and then we get this craziness, right? Quick aside, the fact that they call it discery, which I've seen a lot, and <laughs> why did we lose that term? That's awesome. <laughs> the discery. The discery. Man, I just signed a contract with a great new discery, guys. <laughs> I'm going into the monkery. <laughs> All right. What do you guys think? You think it would have been a hit otherwise if he hadn't killed himself? I don't think it would be what it was. I think Don Roby did probably what any savvy yet slightly... Capricious? Is that Yeah, yep. He, I mean, I hate to say it, and why not? Who's, you know, what's he gonna, what's, what's Ace gonna do about it, right? And it's true of any artist, you know, once, once the fans realize there's no more, all of a sudden there becomes a demand for it, a mm-hmm. bigger demand. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if it would have been a hit to your question, but it, I think, um, it might have been. I don't know. It would have been an R&B hit probably, right? The, the, the real question that we don't have the answer to is, so had he lived, what would he have done after that? Would he have blown up? Would, would B.B. King be opening up for him? Would it, you know, um, I don't know. Seth? I think it would have still been a hit probably because, again, like we just said, it was probably one of his best songs to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'd already had some hits. So, but yeah, without the sensationalism and all that, I guess uh, – there wouldn't have been – what you get is you get the people that were going to buy it anyway or the people just sort of aware of him may buy it if he's alive. But when he's dead, you've got people that would take an interest in it that maybe never cared about R&B music before or you know, um, didn't listen to that music at all. Then you have people that are curious and give it a listen and help drive the sales and, and mm-hmm. kind of create that cultural moment. So. Yeah. I, th- I think it's interesting too. I, I think it helps that this song is not like some up tempo dance thing. It's almost like I, I don't want to call it a suicide letter, but it's like if you found a letter from someone who just died and they hadn't given you this letter, but you, then you find it after they die and they're pledging their love to you, it makes it, there's a longing with that. It makes you kind of sort of makes you have a. a, a an appreciation or increase your appreciation for the person now that they're gone. Had it been a different song out of his discography that was, you know, that happened to be the next single timing wise, maybe not. Maybe right. this song just lyrically is what caught people going, wow, man, listen to him. He's pledging his love and he's gone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a great point. So my official stance is that I think it would have been a pretty good R&B hit and it would not have been a crossover. And we'll see how things change through early 1955. This is where things get a little bit interesting in the format Speed Wars. So this song was such a hit, the jukebox operators, they couldn't keep up with all the requests coming in from across the country. But it was mostly teenagers who listened to pop and not the traditional R&B fans. So the, uh, Bill uh, Holford, I believe his name, was the recording engineer. He had mastered the songs uh, to both the standard 78 RPM, uh, but he also did 45. So he was prepping, uh, understanding that was there, and it just takes a little bit more time. So they were actually able to to get um, the previously underserved pop fans with this brand new hot R&B single, while the traditional fans were spinning 78s. 
the 45 versions of the record are flying off the shelves to meet the rapid demands of white DJs, of jukebox operators, and uh, the white, larger record-buying press. So we mentioned this conversation before, but with the idea of what the 45 record became, this quick, disposable, two-and-a-half-minute, you know, sort of bubblegummy thing, does this make a solid case to be the first rock and roll record based off the format? based off the fact that it's now R&B, both of those things, even though maybe stylistically or sonically, you don't hear the standard 12-bar blues, three chords, up-tempo. What do you think? You think that it's the first rock and roll record, maybe? Strong case? You just said that the teenagers that were hearing are primarily listening to pop, which would essentially be the rock and roll spur of that, right? Yeah. Right. I have a hard time with that, just stylistically. I mean, I know obviously rock and roll is broad, historically, but also means something to all of us individually. It doesn't feel like it has the um, weight of the other things we associate with rock and roll, kind of like danger and like the youth uh, sort of. I mean, it doesn't have those elements of like when we when I think about rock and roll, I think about rebellious kind of behavior and, you know, kind of like living on your own terms sort of thing. I mean, this is a, a ballad, you know, art yeah. ballad. So it doesn't feel like the first rock and roll record to me. So maybe if it was up-tempo and a little bit more, whatever, because the story is rock and roll. The format changes everything, right? It's uh, a crossover from black to white. It's a wider pop appeal, right? I mean, so like there's so many of those key pieces in there that you're like, okay. But the thing that doesn't make it the first rock and roll record, which I think we're all in agreement is, is the songs, the record. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know? the song yeah. itself, yeah. right? Yeah, but- but also everything progresses, right? There's it, it, very rarely do you find like a a demarcation, and it's like okay, this is this is teen angst, so this is the beginning of you know. I mean, there's always like a little bit of a gray area where there's like elements that are I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of rock and roll stuff that comes later that's pretty schmaltzy that doesn't oh, yeah. have those elements. Oh, so, sure. yeah, sure. man, yeah. So to say that that's I mean, I get you know. For you personally, that that's kind of a defining factor, but doesn't this feel a little bit more Sinatra though? Than, yeah, I mean, couldn't Sinatra have sang a song like this? Probably, yeah. yeah. You know? I, I get, I get, I get your point. Is that rock and roll? But would, <laughs> but would have Sinatra been doing this at the same time as Johnny Ace, or or years later? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. What was Sinatra doing in the early fifties, mid fifties, nineteen fifty-five? At this, this point, fifty-five, 50, right? Fifty-five is so, when this record came out. Right. First, so, first week. I don't know. I don't know his timeline well enough. I don't either. So I don't know. You know, it's obviously a it's a parlor game. We're playing a parlor game. I know we're playing a parlor game. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no right answer unless it's Rocket 88, you know. Uh, but there is no right answer. And, and I'm not going to defend that argument now. That is probably a series of podcasts on its own. But it makes a really strong case in a way that some of these other songs don't because of everything but the track. And I think that's what makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. Probably not. Probably wasn't. But it's, it's pretty close. Well, if nothing else, it aided in the transition, in the growth. Bingo. So, of course, at this time, there's going to be a flurry of covers and tribute records. They get depressed. They go to cash in on the success of Johnny's previous hits, his big number one hit, and then just the gruesome story of it all. 
So uh, things get really weird here. So we got titles, songs called Johnny Ace's Last Letter and a song called Why Johnny Why. Uh, two different artists, but they were on the same record, like A and B. So the myth and the horror behind the hit was so high at the time that no other R&B would even cover the song, which remember before we talked about they just were always constantly covering each other's songs immediately. Uh, and most of the covers at the immediate time were coming from outside of the R&B genre. Interesting too. A lot of them were uh, country. One tribute record called Johnny Is Gone weaves the name of five separate Johnny Ace songs into just a few lyrical lines. Of course, Roby picked up on that trick and he had one of his artists, Mary Adams, cut a tribute song uh, with Johnny Otis, uh, name dropping all of the Duke Records hits into the lyrics, uh, <laughs> ostensibly as a tribute. So by the next month, February 12th, 1955, Pledging My Love was number one R&B record on the air, number two in sales, number three in jukebox plays. And that same week, Billboard reviewed three separate covers of the song. Think about the speed. These guys worked incredibly fast. So within the course of six weeks, we already have all of these tribute records, all of these covers that are getting pressed, that are getting, th like, it takes Seth three <laughs> years to record one song. Yeah, that's probably not wrong. I don't think I'm normal in that, but... <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, did they just not have that much shit to write about? I mean, uh, or they just sort of like hitched hitched a ride on the rocket and they were just going to ride it out, right? Like, <sighs> this is what people are reading about. This is what people are buying. Yeah. I'm just going to keep printing it. I Think guess. about the mechanics of that, okay? So he dies on Christmas Day. Mm -hmm. All right, the record is set to be released uh, the first week of January. So that means in Two the next... Weeks later. Yeah, yeah. So next week, it's like me calling you and saying... Hey, man, get the band together. We're going in the studio tomorrow. It's going immediately to master. It's immediately to press. Immediate promo to be rid up and immediately mailed out to all of the press and then to distribution. In like two weeks. I can't get us to record a podcast, but once a goddamn month. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's impressive, right? Yeah. But I mean, if there's money to be made, they know it's going to be going to be there. So, yeah. So there was a promoter that Duke had on... Um, on the team named Dave Clark, and he's not the Dave Clark you're thinking of, uh, but he claimed they paled the shit out of the record uh, to both the black and white DJs, with, of course, the white DJs being more expensive. And for those that don't listen, payola is a fascinating uh, 1950s scam that was outlawed shortly thereafter, in which essentially they just bribed, they bribed DJs to play records. Uh, literally, they would show up or in the mail or in person and they'd pull the record out, put it on the table and like $100 bills would be stuffed in it. So mm -hmm. so the record was a pop crossover hit, which was of course the first of its kind for Duke Records and it's opening up a much wider and profitable built-in market that's ready to eat this type of stuff up. February 19th, the record was officially a hit on the pop charts at number 21 and it was the first time in pop music that a 45 RPM record outsold a 78. Month and a half after, Don Roby announced to the press that he has signed the brother of Johnny Ace to Duke Records. We'll revisit that story here in a little bit. So it's the first week of March. The record was number one in R&B charts across all measurements, radio, sales, and jukebox play. But it's clear now that the walls between R&B and pop were quickly being ripped apart, and Johnny Ace has posthumously fired the first shot. While most white radio stations mostly played the covers... 
by cute songstress named Teresa Brewer. Johnny's original version still dominated hearts and minds and a lot of the sales. So now we've got a confusing bit of events. The authorship of Pledging My Love when first recorded wasn't clear. It was believed to be a songwriter named Fats Washington who at least wrote the lyrics, but Roby left him off the copyright application, but agreed to give him half of all the claims. But in late January 1955, as a song skyrocketed up the charts, there was some revision to the authorships and to the claims. The revised claim shows, guess who, Don Roby, as the sole author via his own publishing company, Lion Publishing. The very next day, paperwork was revised with Fats Washington and Don Roby splitting lyrics and melody. And perhaps this was the cash in on all the record covers since those royalties would have been much higher than the mechanicals. And since the record was so hot in the wider pop markets. This fucking guy. <sighs> yep. <laughs> Can't get anything by him. Yep. Somebody's got to get paid. As R&B tracks started to cross over and get uh, immediate covers to cash in on the success of the much smaller markets, those indie labels and the black market, the covers of the white stars clearly weren't being seen as a tribute but as an attempt to steal, exploit all the successful material and then destroy any competition in the marketplace. Some, including the great poet Langston Hughes, saw it then and still to this day as appropriation, whitewashing and an abuse of black music. Others saw it as just showbiz, capitalized on something that works, promoting it to the widest commercial appeal and then running it into the ground. Fact is, while Johnny Ace was alive, no other white artist ever covered his songs, and no one could have competed regardless. And after his death, his version, not a cover version, was the one that the kids and the Biden public wanted to hear. So you guys think that Roby would have done something a little bit different if he had the resources or the reach of a major label? It might have been on a bigger scale. He might not have gotten away with putting his name on the song as a writer, because I'm sure he would have had a lot more of accountability. A lot more eyes. Yeah, but outside of that, who knows? I mean, it seems like Roby's got one way of working. And that probably doesn't fit too well. I think that's kind of what you're saying. Within the a bigger machine of major label, I mean, if he would have had more money to put behind it, I'm sure he would have put all those additional resources behind it. But how, what, how much farther could it have gone? That, that's like true. What, what was missing that he didn't have to push it because, I mean, it yeah. became a massive hit anyway. Yeah. So these cover versions by the different artists, it kind of blows my mind, this blending all into essentially one song, right? They're they're not putting a spin on it. They're not making it sound like the Casey Wood version of Pledging My Love. Oh, that would be good too. Yeah, right? So the performer <laughs> mattered less. It allows for market segmentation, which I get, you know, and I can see Langston Hughes' point 100%. But I also see just general market dynamics. Well, it's not something that's limited to white artists doing that to black artists. No, I mean, yeah, that, money. that of course happens, but everyone of every race will take an opportunity if they see it. I mean, but was it more about whose picture was on the front of the single? You know, I mean, I mean, for this a white guy versus a black guy. I mean, obviously, this had to be because of the story. I mean, he was this good-looking young guy, killed himself. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that played part of it. But I guess you know, you're sitting in a jukebox and you just see "Pledging My Love." But I mean, with the covers, remember they didn't have covers then. What do you mean covers? Covers? You mean mean cover cover versions? Yeah, cover versions. I think cover the record. Well, I did mean I meant both because how do don't they have something that 
What do you look? What do you see in the jukebox? Just the rec- the label on the record, right? Yeah. No, in the jukebox at the time, you would have just seen the card. The, yeah, the oh, right. tiny yeah, little the card name. with the yeah, type. Just the name and both songs. Yeah, on both yeah. sides. Okay. And if you go into the store, yeah, I was trying to figure if there were people that like the song but want to hear it by white artist. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, the, I th- I think so. But I, it's interesting, and I don't disagree, and I and I see that point. But you know, the, you didn't go and buy the seven inch with the full color seven inch, and it's the the Teresa Brewer lady or Johnny Ace or one of the yeah, other yeah. thousand. Like yeah. it just is the song you like. Oh, I love that song, right? right. And right. you know, I mean, that's why they had all those like cheap knockoff Beatles records. Like the parents saw something that looked like yeah, it, and yeah. they're like, oh, let me buy this. You know, they don't, they don't. Yeah. The KTEL label, the everything yeah. they put out. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Is that why the covers didn't stray from the original? I, I mean, know. they just, so it was kind of whoever's version you heard, you were just sort of hearing the same song, sort of? Yeah. Or? Yeah, that's interesting. Like, if you were some kid that lived in some secondary market where, you know, the radio stations weren't playing it, but you'd heard it somewhere and you went to the record store and bought it, if it's close enough, maybe Would you, you don't know, know it's not the right. version. It's just a, it's the same song, but. Yeah, you're hearing on a kind of a low quality radio yeah. or something, and then yeah. you hear it again. They should have looked it up on the internet. <laughs> so the gruesome death of Johnny Ace coupled perfectly with the well-timed single and this huge pop over cross appeal is dominating the top of the newly minted R&B charts it, it changed the make and the, the tenor of the market and it was a signpost that directed the back half of the 1950s so at the time now the record buying public wanted music that appealed to the newly minted demographic of teenagers with a specific artist recording and not just a bland cash-in cover, on a 45 RPM disc from a black artist with a nationwide audience that could collectively mourn the death of a real-deal heartthrob who's cut down in the prime by his own hand. So excluding that last piece, right, this is where things start to look like rock and roll. I mean, even with that last piece. I mean, it's like, uh, it's the story. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is where that changes. So we just had this conversation about the cover piece, but slowly people are starting to come around and be like, uh, I want the Johnny Ace one. The real version. Yeah, yeah, because this 10 other white people or country artists or other genres, like it doesn't tell the story of Johnny Ace. You know, it's not a personal suicide note. Right. Johnny Ace was seen as a black James Dean. He was young, sexy, gone too soon by his own hand on Christmas nonetheless. And of course, Don Roby, sitting on the sidelines, had six more unreleased songs in the can, ready to capitalize on the moment. 